Lord, we come before you today. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this psalm and on the history of Israel and, and see what we can learn from this. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 78, it's, what, 72 verses long? It's basically a history of Israel. So we're going to get started here on verse 1. Michelle of Masiel of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to, my, to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. For he has established a testimony in Jacob and appointed law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and might not, as their, as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. I'm going to stop there because we're starting to get into the history. We're going to look first at this preamble, because there's a lot here. Uh, Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Mm. How do we we protect ourselves in the spiritual world for God? We give ear to God's words. It gives us protection physically and spiritually. That's why I like listening to the radio scriptures in the morning when I go to work. Down there, I was like, oh. We hear God's word. We listen to God's word. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed to thy word. If we want to be able to protect ourselves and to cleanse ourselves and to walk with God's way, we spend time in his word. We spend time with his word. We spend time listening to teachers. We spend time getting to know God. And that's the only way we can really protect ourselves. We need to change the way we think. Because if we continue to think the way the flesh thinks, we will err, always. Mm -hmm. It's a guarantee. And this is why I say, when we walk away from church, we stop reading the scriptures, we stop praying, we spend less time with God's people, we will find ourselves following the road of sin. It's not even a maybe. We start drifting away from the spiritual things. We will walk in sin. We will drift away from God because we are flesh. And if he's not actively cleansing our thoughts, we will make wrong decisions. The world wants to tell us that we're basically good. We can do good things. We can, we can get things right by, by serving, serving uh, ourselves. The world is lying to us. Satan is lying to us to say, you can do it on your own. We cannot change on our own. It, it must be with God. If we try to do it on our own, we will fail. Guarantee on that one, we will fail. And it says, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. He says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. Now, that's kind of a weird way to put this, but this dark sayings literally means difficult questions, ignomatic sayings, you know, those hard to understand 
sayings, perplexing sayings. So he's going, I'm going to give you some very hard things to understand. I'm going to, I'm going to share with you. And he's going to go into the history of Israel and how they backslid and followed, fell, fell away from God. And that's what he's calling hard, hard to understand. And it is hard to understand when you think about what Israel saw. And we're going to get into that. You know, they saw the ten plagues on Egypt. They, uh, they saw God give them water. And these are the things he's going to mention. And yet, they rejected God. Now, we do the same thing often, so we can't be too hard on them. But it is hard to understand how they saw such great miracles and wandered away from God. Like twice, the river's standing back for them. And the ground dry underneath the river that they walked on. Yeah. Not to mention the Red Sea. Yeah. Well, that was what I meant. The yeah. Red Sea and Jordan. Yeah. And so we see this and he says, verse 3, we, which we have heard and known and our fathers have taught us. So Asaph is saying, these have been rehearsed to us. We've been told these things. It's been said that Christianity is one generation away from extinction every, all the time. And it is. If the, if the adults and the parents don't teach their kids and their grandkids and their nieces and nephews and everybody else what God said, it's going to be gone. And this is where we are right now in our world where people are starting to do what they want and what they think is right. We're... It, God said that it will be like the days of Noah. And in the days of Noah, everyone did what was good in their own eyes, and they didn't seek God. We're starting to see that same type of thing developing in our world, where people are doing what they think is right and redefining everything. We see it in homosexual marriage. We see it in the ideas of, of uh, abortion, uh, easy divorce, all these things that God says not to do, the world's saying, oh, we're just going to do it. God talks about disciplining our kids and talks about corporal punishment on the kids as the way to train them up. The world tells us, don't do that, and look at the world, look at the kids we're getting. We, we see that every place we violate God's standards, we end up with problems, and then we wonder why everything's as bad as it is. We teach our kids that there is no absolute right and wrong. You know, whatever you think is right, whatever, whatever you think is good is good, and whatever you think is bad is bad. We tell sinners to do that, and, we're, what, and, we, and we wonder why they have no morals, no ethics, no, no good behavior. Absolutely. We teach our children, we send our children, I didn't, but parents say their whole life to send their child to college to come back home with the absolute non-truth. It's not even necessarily college anymore. It's happening in, high, in elementary school and high school. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's starting early now. It used to be college really did them in. But this is the reason why the government's pushing to get kids at three and four years old into schools. It's not because there's any evidence that they do better in school because of it. It's to get them out of their parents' home and, in, and indoctrinated into government think and get them away from especially Christian parents who will teach them godly, godly principles because if we can lay that principle in them by the time they're five years old, that they're going to hold on to those principles, especially if they're real to us. Okay, if, if we as parents live a Christian life in front of them, 
what we teach them is going to be more real to them. The problem in a lot of Christian homes is that the parents aren't living a Christian life 24-7, 365 days a year with their kids. And their kids see hypocrisy and they go, well, why should I believe what my parents are telling me? I'm going to believe what the school is telling me. I had seen, I was listening to a teacher that one of our, that our daughter had in preschool. She says, kids, listen to your parents. They know what's right for you. And that's not always taught anymore. No. And that was something I taught us to be considered. Mm -hmm. There are no secrets in this home. There is nothing that I don't want you to go tell your parents, especially if it's something that upset you. I would rather you share it with me first because I may have an explanation, but always we tell our parents everything. Yep. But this is God encouraging us. Share with your kids. Teach them God's word. And for that matter, it was given specifically in Deuteronomy to the fathers to do it. Now, many fathers abdicate that responsibility in, in our day and world. Many of them say, well, that's the mother's thing to do the spiritual side of things because they're just not listening to God. But they're still going to be accountable before God for the spiritual training up of their children. Whether they do it or not, or somebody else does it, they're going to be responsible for having when God says, well, why didn't you do this? Or how come, how come you abdicated it? Verse 4, we will not hide from, our, from, from their children, showing that to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Show God praise. In our homes, are we lifting God up? Are we being thankful for, to God in our, with our kids? Are we showing his strength? What has he done in the past? All of his works. And this is wonderful. This is where devotions come in. This is where the average child out there, and I've heard this study, has never caught their parents praying or reading the Bible. And that's a sad thought. Because if you are, and say you're doing it at 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock in the morning before the kids are up, and that's, and that's the only time you touch God's word or, or praise him, and your kids aren't up, what are they going to believe about you is that you don't read your Bible, you don't pray. If all the only time they ever see you pray is right before a meal or meal, you've got a problem. Kids have to see us worshiping God. But it's very important for our kids to know we are worshiping God. We're, we're reading the Bible. We're looking for God for, for answers to prayers. We're looking for giving them the stories of the Bible and then giving the application to the Bible. Very important. Kids need to know that what we're doing is real. Mm -hmm. the, the generation of kids, especially when my kids were teenagers, and I was very aware of this, the teenagers were looking for something that was real. They, 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 would, follow, they would follow God. They would follow anything that they felt was real and it had some power. And so the teenagers that were from nominal Christian homes, they were running from Christianity because their parents didn't seem to believe it was real. And unless they somehow had a church that really touched them, they were going to look for something that was real and had power. And it was an amazing generation that came up that was looking for a real God, a God of power. And many of them were looking because they, they rejected what their parents did because their parents had a Sunday morning Christianity at best. And this is not a place you want to be.
as a Christian, we're to be a Christian 24-7, 365 days a year, no exceptions, <laughs> to be Christian. We don't take a day off to go be worldly if we're going to be following Christ. He asks us to follow him wholeheartedly with all of our strength. And this is, you know, we're to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and might. Uh, heart, strength, soul, mind. I knew I had missing one. You know, and that is how we're to serve him. All of our thinking needs to be on him. All of our strength needs to be on him. You know, all of our innermost being, our soul, needs to be changed by him. And we go forward with him. That is true discipleship. That is true following God. That is true having a Lord, Master, Savior. He says, do we do. <laughs> you know, when you have a master, you don't go, he doesn't say, I want you to do it. You don't say, no, I'm not. Okay? Because a master in, a, in that relationship would discipline you very harshly until you finally decide, yes, I am. I said that one time. Yeah. If God is truly your Lord and Master, you're going to do it the way He says to do it, and when He says to do it. And if you don't, you'll experience all the discipline that He has to bring to bear to get you to do what it is that He told you to do. And God is not going to tell you to do something else until you do the last thing He told you to do. So if you're always wondering, if you're in a place where you don't know what you're supposed to do, think back to the last thing you know God told you to do and have you done it? Probably not. Abraham was told to leave Ur of Chaldees and leave his family. So what did he do? He left with his father and his nephew. And then he stopped for 20 years. Yeah, but how many cousins did he leave behind? Well, he left a lot of family behind, I'm sure, but he took a lot of family with him that he wasn't supposed to take. He stayed in one place until his father finally passed away. And then his, own, and his, and his brother was passed away, and he took his nephew with him. And we know what, what his nephew Lot did and ended up doing. He, you know, he took the best land and, and lived where the, where the sins were in Sodom and then left. And his daughters had incest with him, and two enemies of Israel came out of that deal. Now, if he had left his nephew in Ur of Chaldees, there would have been two less enemies for Israel to deal with, at least. <laughs> so disobedience always has ramifications, and sometimes long-term ramifications. Lot would still have his wife. Lot would still have his wife, yes. People used our, our pillar needs to be God all the time, not, not people. We, we look to people to a small degree, but we, do, we'll never, we should never depend on other people to, as much as we do God. Because people will always disappoint us. Always. And if you're looking at a person to be your, your pillar and your strength, your hope, you're, gonna, you're going to be disappointed. And this has happened with many people that have raised their pastors up to a high level and say, I'm going to follow my pastor, and he's great, he's wonderful. And you know, yes, usually they are. But they can fall, and if, they, and if, you're, if, they're, if that is your hope and your pillar, and your pastor falls, you're in trouble. Your pillar must be Jesus, and God will help you do that. Yes, you follow, and Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Yeah. If he had drifted off, he says, I don't want you to follow me as I drift off into sin, and don't fall because I fall. 
keep going on because your eyes are on Jesus. Verse 9, For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make known to their children. So here he is repeating the same sentence. Make this information known to your children. Teach them. And we need to be teaching our, any children in our life, we need to be teaching them. Whether it's teaching as a Sunday school teacher, teaching at home for young kids, our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, nieces, nephews, whoever we can, we need to make sure that they are being raised in the admonition of the Lord and know his, know his rules, know the way to think. Because it is so important for children to learn correctly at an early age. The hardest thing in the world is for somebody to get saved in their, especially later years, and they've had years of wrong thinking that God has to clear out of their brains to put his stuff in there. And sometimes even being raised in a church doesn't do you any good because sometimes you're not raised in a strong church, hearing the truth of God, and there's all kinds of garbage to be pulled out of your brain. And we see churches that are so much into God's laws and rules and, and they present this angry, vicious God to them that they make people afraid of God. The God that loves them, the God that gave his son so that they would be in a fellowship with him and we teach them to be afraid of him. To be afraid of him because he hates, uh, he hates everything you do so therefore watch out. We have to be careful about that because he sees us through the eyes of grace in the eyes of mercy, Jesus paid the price. When he looks at us, his children, he sees perfection. Now there, there are rules that when we disobey the laws of reaping and sowing and reaping will take effect, but it's not God beating us over the head with that disobedience. It's we've sown bad seed, we reap the, the reward for it. It's not God standing over there with a baseball bat banging us over the head it is just the laws of sowing and reaping. We sow good seed, we will get good fruit from it. We sow bad seed, we get bad seed, a bad fruit. Now, does that mean everything bad that happens to us is because of what we've sown? No. Sometimes it's just God throwing a test our way and say, are we going to be faithful to him even during the hard times? Often it is that we've done bad things and we're, and we're reaping our reward. And we can see that many times when you look at your life and say, you know, okay, yeah, I've made some bad decisions. I've done some bad things. When we raise our kids, have we made mistakes with our kids? Obviously, we're not perfect. Are we responsible for their decisions and their, and their actions? Absolutely not. They are. Even if we put some bad things in their life and made it difficult for them, they're still ultimately accountable for what they've done. We will answer for the things we did wrong before God as well, but they're responsible. And this is something we have to understand as parents. We are not responsible for the actions of our kids. They are, they are individuals that make their own decisions and they stand and fall before God. Will we have some impact on what they've decided to do? Probably, but it's still there. We've seen good kids come from terrible bad families and we've seen terrible bad kids come from really good families because of the decisions the children make. And it's their decisions. And we cannot allow ourselves as parents to be feeling guilty about our kids. <laughs> Believe me, I've been there, I've done that. <laughs> I've done that with my kids. 
And I know that I had made plenty of mistakes with my kids, especially the oldest, because I worked all the time when he was young. And yet, I know that his decisions were his decisions. And I, but I had to work through that. And I always want to make sure that parents understand, you are not guilty, your kids aren't, you aren't guilty because of what your kids do. Now, we may feel bad because we're feeling that people are judging us, you know, well, you know, what kind of Christian were you? Look at the kids you produced. Doesn't matter. You did the best you could. Did you make mistakes? Absolutely. Did you do right things? Probably too. I don't think there's anybody out there that's done everything wrong with their kid. And even if that was true, they're still not responsible for the kids' decisions. They did make it more difficult for their kid to make decisions, but still, children can make good decisions because they stand and fall before God. But we do our job. We teach our kids. We show them God's word. We show them God's way. We get them into the word because we lay foundations at an early age. There's certain things become core values for people, and that's what they learn early on. And those core values are very hard to change. Now, psychologists and sociologists will tell you that they're impossible to change. I don't buy that. I believe because of the power of God and God's word, core values can be changed because we are a new creation. Now, in the flesh, core values aren't going to change. Those are the things that says, this is what I do because this is who I am at the very deepest level of who I am. We had a long discussion the other day. I think you got my message about faith. That means that we're pre-programmed or that it's going to happen. It's that no it's, matter what. No matter what. This is a foundation or, or a core value we give. <laughs> it's the kids are going to do what they want in their own mind. But uh, the Bible much. doesn't teach faith. And you want to be careful about that. That's or a worldly, fate yeah. is a worldly idea. That it's going to happen no matter what you do. Luck or fate. Yeah, or yeah that's not something that Christianity and the scriptures talks about. Coincidence is, you know, it's all decisions, uh, the core values and foundations. Yeah, and core values are a pretty big deal because it is who you are. It's what you've decided to do just because it is who you are internally. So when we become Christians and we become a new creation, God starts changing our core values in our life. And he starts making them more like him. Mm -hmm. And so as we grow, he literally, God is the only one that really can do this, changing our core values, who we are in the innermost being. Are you a kind person? Are you a mean person? And there's some people that their core value is that they're mean. Okay, they're going to be mean no matter how nice somebody is to them, no matter how good things are going, they're just going to be mean. It's probably learned, it's probably response, but it is a core. This is who they are. There's some people who are just loving. Whether they're Christian or not, they're just loving. They love everybody and everything, and they're happy-go-lucky. But God, when he comes in, will make us more like him because he makes us a new creation. He changes us. We get into his word, and as, I, as we learn in the scriptures, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, he slowly changes who we are at the deepest level of who we are. Now, that takes time. Some things he changes quickly. And it's always amazed me when you see somebody who gets saved, and almost overnight, it seems like everything in their life changes. They get victory over everything, you know, their language, their, their, their drug addiction, their drinking addiction, their smoke. You know, they're, they're, they're just like, they've been totally flipped over and they have a total new life. Now, I don't know why God does that with some people. 
and I know that it's very few people that he does that with, most of us have to be changed slowly over a long period of time with him using a two by four to get our attention every <laughs> once in a while and saying, I really want you to change this as he pounds us over the head because we are, uh, you know, we're the, we're the stubborn, stubborn donkey that doesn't want to move. But he does this with us and he, and he starts changing us and he changes the way we think and the way we act. And we very, we slowly, but, in a, in, but continually, as long as we stay in his word and stay in fellowship with him, get changed. But you know, so if I had not fallen and went through some of the things I did, being as sheltered as I was as a person, as a child growing up and a young woman, I don't think I would have the empathy and the compassion and the understanding for other people who are going through difficult situations, maybe not like mine, but I understand the problem. Oh, I understand that part too. The, the, I think there is a degree of truth in that. that somebody who's changed overnight may not understand those who are going through it slowly. They would be very, well, what's wrong with you? I, I just gave up cigarettes and, and drugs and alcohol and women and bad language and it happened to me overnight. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you able to do it? That could very well be why most of us have to go through it really slow and over a very laborious time. Empathy is a good and a bad thing at the same time. Empathy allows us to sympathize with a person, but we gotta be careful that we don't think that our situation is, is exactly like theirs, because no two situations are exactly the same. And empathy can, can get us to try to push them in our answer rather than letting them find God's answer for them. This is why in Job's case, Job was declared by God as a perfect and righteous man, yet God at the very end said, Job, you know, let's, let's get you at least to see yourself as you are, a sinner. You know, don't, you know, you kept justifying yourself the whole book. You know, you are a sinner. Even though you weren't, this isn't why it happened to you, you are a sinner. And we've got to be careful that, and this is a problem a lot of Christians who've been grown up as Christians have, see themselves as bad sinners, especially if they grew up in a Christian home and stayed out of drugs and alcohol and, and stayed as virgins until they got married and all this. They have this mentality of, well, I'm really not that bad because I didn't fall into all these other sins. And this is a problem area that people have. They've got to realize that they're sinners. And this is why sometimes I wonder for kids who grew up in church, did they really ever get saved? Did they ever really recognize that they're sinners? And it's hard to tell. Some have. I, I know a person whose testimony was that they remember getting saved at three years old and they know that they got saved and they've been following God ever since. And this person you know was following God. Uh, you know, they were very active in the church, very, very much in love with God. I've also known kids who have said prayers at early ages, and uh, it's pretty obvious that they don't know God because they didn't understand. And, I'm, and working with kids is a very tricky area because you, you want to make sure they understand what it means to be, be saved, and, and young kids can know what it means to be saved, but I'm also very worried that they're gonna grow up if they don't know what they did, thinking they're saved for the rest of their life because they said a prayer that they didn't really understand or believe. And this is why it's really critical when you're dealing with children, especially, that they understand. They understand what sin is. 
that they are a sinner and that sin deserves punishment of hell. And then when you mention hell, people get all worked up. You can't teach kids that. Well, I'm sorry, it's, it is part of being saved, understanding that you deserve hell. And if you want to say you're scaring people into the kingdom, I really don't care. I'd rather scare people into the kingdom than have them go to hell by, by making it soft-pedaled. Because it's important that people understand what they're being saved from. If you don't, if you don't understand that you are a sinner and deserving the punishment, there's nothing to be saved from. And when you leave out any part of the three parts, they can't be saved. If you teach them they're a sinner but they, 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 and they need a savior and you're leaving out what they're saved from, you know, the punishment that they deserve. Now, that doesn't mean to make it all scary and tell them all about what hell's all about, but you teach them that there's a punishment that's eternal and it's called hell. You don't have to tell them all about the lake of fire and and the brimstone, and it's, you know, that you'll burn forever, and, and, and all of this stuff. That's not what you need to be teaching kids when you're talking about, about it. But they need to understand there is punishment for wrongdoing, and that it is eternal punishment. And they need to understand at least that much. Reason for doing all of this is in verse 6, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born, who should rise and declare to their children, okay? So we're telling them so that they will know and that they can tell their children. Very important that this keeps moving forward and this is what he's saying. It's gotta be known, it's gotta be shared. Because if we don't share it with our kids, the world's not gonna tell them about Christianity. The world's not gonna tell them about God. So if we're not doing it and we're depending on somebody else to, you know, I worked in, with children's ministry for more than 25 years, and I really didn't like it when the kids would drop off. And went, here you are, here are my kids, and you know, I, I want you to really give them God's word. I'm going, well, you know, I hope you get them saved. I'm going, what's wrong with you? you I get them one hour a week. You've got them 167 hours a week, and you want me to be the one that gives them the foundation for their life? Not going to happen. I will do my part. I will give them the stories and I will be giving them the gospel. But I can't, I can't give them something that there's, that's going to change their life, really. As a pastor, I can't give somebody in one hour a week, if that's, you know, and that's if they come every week, okay. enough to change their life completely. Because it's just going to be the taste. It's just going to be enough to, to give a thirst. And hopefully we get a thirst enough that, especially for adults, that they'll come and do more and they'll seek more. But I will take whatever opportunity I have. If all I get is one hour a week for somebody, I'll take one hour a week with them. Right. If I get a lot more, I'll take a lot more with them. Because it's important that we get whatever we can to give them that taste, the salt, the, the taste of water to say, I want more. When you're thirsty and you start drinking water, that first drink, of, that first sip of water just lets you know you want more. Yes. You know, if all you have is a drop of water, it's like, where's the rest? I gotta have more water, you know. This didn't do it. So we, as our job as Christians is to share the gospel with people. Give them that taste of water and make them want more. Make them want more and keep it so that it is declared, it is recalled even to the next generation. Very important. Verse 7 tells us what? 
that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. We're teaching them, and what are we to teach them? To keep their hope in God, their expectation, their confidence. And remember, hope in the scripture is not a, I think maybe possibly type hope like we use in English. I hope it's sunny tomorrow, you know, is how we use it in English. I kind of wish maybe I, I would like it to be sunny. No, and hope in the scriptures is a confident assurance of something. Okay, it's not, my hope in God is not this, maybe if possibly God will be kind to me. It is, I know what God is and I know who he is and I've got confidence in that he wants to give me blessings because he says he wants to do so. That's what we're looking at, that, that confident expectation of that hope. And then that they don't forget God's works. And we've shared this over and over again. How do I know that God is going to take care of me in the future? Because he's done it in the past. He took care of Israel over and over and over again. Even though they were disobedient, he took care of them until he got tired of their disobedience after about 800, 900 years. Then he put them into captivity for a while and then he brought them back. And then he let them stay for another 400 years and then, he, then they misbehaved and he sent them into captivity that they, haven't, that they just recently came back from. Okay? How do I know God's going to take care of me? Because he's done it for Israel. How, am I gonna, how do I know he's going to take care of me? He did it for the disciples. How do I know that he's going to take care of me? Look at any of the early church fathers and their testimony of how God took care of them. How am I going to know he's going to take care of me? Look at any, any biography of any, any pastor or missionary or anybody out there. How do I know he's going to take care of me? Look at my own life and all the places he has done it. How do I know he's going to take care of me? Look at the other people in the church that he's taken care of. He's proved over and over and over again that he's going to take care of us. And if we can't believe all of that proof in the past, we've got a problem. Mm -hmm. We've got a problem if we can't believe all the proof. And as I've said, it's wonderful to read the scriptures and know that God took care of them. It's even better when we look at others in the church and hear their testimony about how God is taking care of them today, right this moment. Because it's one thing to look back in the past and say, well, God, you know, used, to, God used to take care of it. And you know, there's a lot of churches that teach that. God used to do. God used to do these things. You know, he used to create miracles. He used to baptize people in the Holy Spirit. He used to, you know, do these things. Well, the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he did back then, he still does today. And he will do in however long there is left in the future. We need to be able to grab hold of that. God is still a miracle-working God. He is still a God that loves us. He's still a God that cares for us. He is still everything he's ever been in the scriptures. He still is. And we need to understand he has not changed. The world's going to try to tell us he's changed. Satan really wants us to believe that he's changed. And he's setting up the world to tell us that he's changed. And it's really sad when the church buys into somehow God has changed. I've shared with people that one of the things I really dislike is when somebody will look at a scripture and say, well, that was for their day. No. Every word in the scripture is there for a reason. And it's not to tell us what used to happen. It is to what is going on 
today. It is valid for today. Every word is there for a reason. There's nothing in there that's not there for a reason. It's something to do to teach us. It's something to show us how we're to behave and act. It teaches us. And we want to be very careful because I've heard people say, well, that was, that was the custom of their day, so it has no apple, uh, application today. Then why did God put it in his word for us to learn, learn from? We need to be careful with that. Very careful with that kind of a mentality. Every word in scripture is there for a reason. And I emphasize that, and I emphasize it over and over and over again. Every word is there for a reason. It's inspired by God. It's, and it says, all scripture is given by inspiration is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. Every word is profitable for instruction. And we need to look at what, what it is. And when you find something like that that says, well, I'm not sure what this means, then to ask God to show it to you. Believe me, God will show you. And I, my testimony is, as a teenager, even before I knew how to use, get into Greek and Hebrew, I would ask God, what does this mean? Because I'm confused. Because I went to a lot of different denominations when I was young. And I would go to God, what does this mean? And he would show me. And when I went to Bible college, I was able to prove that what he showed me was right. So talk to God, ask him for direction, ask him for help and understanding. He'll, he'll give it to you. He'll give you the understanding or he'll put somebody in your life that can help you to understand it. So either way, he can do it directly. And believe me, he can do it directly. Spend some time praying about it, thinking about it, listening to the spirit and doing as much research as you can. And with me, I, would, I prefer that we stay away from commentary as much as possible until you have an answer on what God has shown you and then go into the commentary. Mm -hmm. you know, make sure you've done your study first before because commentary is always the opinion of men. Now, some of these opinions are good. Some of them are poor. And even the best commentary has bad parts in it. Okay? And so I just bring that up because commentaries are good for the most part. But you've got to remember two things. They're made by men, and not every word of it is, is gospel truth. Matter of fact, some of it is not true at all. And so you want to be careful with commentaries because they can be wrong. Same thing with teachers. And this is why I will always encourage people, be Bereans, research what you hear. Don't believe it just because you hear a pastor saying it. There's pastors that I really respect and love on, on the radio. But every once in a while, I'll hear them say something that just makes no sense whatsoever, scripturally. And you've got to be careful. It's amazing to me how God will bring out just the things that need to be brought out. And people will say that, you know, I needed to hear that, or that was just what I needed, or, and not that I know their situations, and I don't try to preach to people, which is one thing I love about going verse by verse through the Bible. Nobody can say that I'm preaching at them on purpose anyway because it's the next verse in the Bible the next verse in the book you know you just keep going and if it touches on toes you know stomps on toes it stomps on toes that's between them and God it's so wonderful to be able to teach his word and know that his word is living his word this word is so alive it is so so perfect studied it been studying it for 44 years and it's still fresh it's still brand new there's still new things discovered in it every time I open it up. 
and say, wow, that is so interesting and that's so wonderful. And you tie it in in this, in this particular chapter that we're in, we're going to tie it into other parts of the scriptures all over the place because it's history of Israel and what God has done. And we see this and we want to build this hope up. We don't want people to forget God's work. We want to teach them to keep his commandments. We want to teach, not because of legal reasons or that you follow these to get close, closer to God, because it won't work. We follow his commandments so that we're sowing good seed and we start reaping good in return. If we start violating his commandments, we're sowing bad seeds, we're going to get bad in return. If we're, as fathers, teaching our children God's word, we're going to see our kids generally be obedient to God as long as we're living that word that we're teaching them. And God's promise is, and it, does, it is true, that if we bring up our children the way they're, that they should go, they may depart from that for a period of time, but they come back. Mm -hmm. They do come back. And even if they don't, that's their choice, but generally they come back because God's word pricks their heart. They're, I remember dad saying this or doing that or and for especially for boys it needs to be the dad that leads them too many boys as teenagers want to leave the church why dad doesn't go to church in many families when I was raising my kids it wasn't a question of whether they were going to church or not it's like we're going <laughs> get up let's go we're going to church and we drug them to church Sunday morning Sunday night Wednesday night <laughs> You know, and we took them to church with us. We didn't send them to church. We didn't, they came with us. Now, for the most part, they were usually willing to come to church because they knew they didn't have any other options anyway, but we also raised them that way. We were going to be in church. And for many years, we had to be in church really early to get a seat, okay? Because we went to a church for a while that if you didn't go to church an hour early, you didn't get a good seat. And if you weren't there 20 minutes early, you might not even have a seat. And it sat 1,500 people. So a lot of people came to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And we would have to be at church about an hour early because we like to sit up front. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, okay, we're get ready, guys. We're going to church. But that was the way we lived our life. It was study. It was getting, getting into God's word. I can't tell you, my kids always saw me studying the Bible because I had my desk covered with books at the time. Yeah. Uh, all kinds of study books. Then I got the computer, it was really easy, but they still saw me studying. We prayed with them, we, we encouraged them to really make their, their own discipleship with Jesus and their own following with Jesus. We need that. Mm -hmm. We need to be disciples of God and saying, I am going to follow God as, to the best of my ability by getting into his word, by praying, spending the, the 2.4 hours a day with God that we talked about this morning. A tithe of our day belongs to God. Two and a half hours a day. Now on Sundays that's pretty easy for most of the people that are in this room right now because we spend Sunday, Sunday school, Sunday, morning, Sunday service, and, and this service. You've got your three hours right off the bat you know, for today. How do you get your two and a half hours on a Monday when there's nothing going on in the church? You get into his word. You listen to, you listen to Christian radio a little bit. You, you talk with others about his word. Very important. You spend time in prayer. 
those are the days that are hard to get your time in with God is when there's nothing going on at the church. Different, different pastors are good. We wanna, we wanna be able to get into his word, be able to help our children keep their commandments. Verse eight, that they might not be as their fathers, a stubborn, rebellious generation, a generation that set not their hearts aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Okay, he's saying raise up your children so they're not like, in this case he said fathers, but he's mean, basically meaning great, you know, great, great, great grandfathers because he's going to go back to Israel in the wilderness and how they kept rebelling against God. He goes, we're going to teach our kids to be obedient to God. Why? Because we don't want them to be disobedient. Like the fathers who actually saw all the stuff that we've been, they were telling them about what God did. And again, it's amazing what, that Israel rejected God over and over and over again. Now, we're going to just cover some of the, you know, God does miracles in Egypt to drive them out. They don't even get very far. They haven't even gone a day or two out, and they're at the Red Sea complaining, to, complaining that God took them out, Moses took them out because there weren't graves in Egypt, and they were going to die there. God does a miracle, takes them, another miracle, takes them across the Red Sea. Oh, there's no water. We're going to die of thirst out here. What's wrong with you, Moses? Murmuring and complaining. Murmuring and complaining everywhere. And that's why they called the first place they got water, Mira, bitterness, murmur. Mm-hmm. You know, goes a little farther and goes, you know, hey, we're hungry. There's no food out here. So he gives them manna. Moses is up on the mountain getting the laws of God. And he's only gone for, four, you know, for 40 days. And they go to Aaron and go, this, this Moses guy that let us out, he's, he's kind of, he's lost, he's, he's off his rocker, we, you know, he's gone, we don't, know when he, we don't know when he's coming back, I guess he died up there on the mountain, make us a God to take, you know, that we can worship. And they make the golden calf. They start, they start wandering out and they start complaining they don't have, they don't like the food they're eating, give us, give us, give us, uh, food, give us flesh, give us something other than this manna. So God gives them quail. They start rebelling against Moses as a leader. Miriam does, and Aaron, and Miriam is struck with leprosy for a week. Korah comes against him and, and leads, a bunch of, leads a bunch of leaders to go against Moses. They get swallowed up by the earth. They go and complain again about, they get to the land, the promised land. They're all set to go in. And 10 spies say, no, there's no way we can t- defeat these giants. The people murmur and complain. And they're going to take a vote to, to pick a new captain to take them back to Egypt. Okay, they've been out of Egypt for over a year and they want to go back to slavery because 10 people give a bad report about a perfect land. Who say, yes, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. Yes, it's got plenty of, plenty of food out there. Yes, it's prosperous. Yes, the, but it's got giants in there and we can't beat these giants. Oh, let's run away. Oh, they didn't get to go in. They wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, complaining almost every step of the way. We need more water. And Moses strikes the rock that he's supposed to speak to. Moses gets in trouble, doesn't get to go into the promised land because he beat the rock a second time. And it represented Jesus, the, water, the fountain of water. He struck it the first time because he paid for our sins. The second time he was just to speak to it and show the power of Jesus coming out. He blew, this, he blew the symbol. And God said, you're not going into the promised land. 
If the people hadn't rebelled at that time, he'd have led them into the promised land. All of this time they kept sinning. Joshua leads them into the promised land. Most of the tribes do not totally conquer their territory that they're given to conquer. They leave the enemy in there and the enemy is going to be a thorn in their side for the rest of their time. Even to this day for most of them. The period of the judges. Over and over again, the cycle of the people doing what was good in their eyes, being judged by God, a judge rises up to deliver them. You go to the kings of Israel and, and, and Judah. In Israel, the northern kingdom, they never had a good king. They always had idolatry worship and golden calf worship and and Baal worship and Astoro worship. And they were judged. Israel at least had a couple kings that did a good job and actually cleaned up, cleaned up the, the country. You mean Judah. Huh? You mean Judah. Judah. The, the kingdom of Judah had a few good kings. But nothing lasted. All of these times they kept falling. He's saying... We don't want to be like those rebellious people. We need to train up our children in the admonition of the Lord and his ways and his thinking. Very important. We need to train up ourselves if we, you know, to start with. Yeah. Now, we need to be training ourselves so that we can train the next generation. And this is why it's important. This is why getting into the word of God is so important. Train our thinking. Train up our understanding of God. Get to know God in who he is, not who we think he is, not who, who others think he is, but get to really know God as he is. And this is why I say so many people have this vision of God as a big angry bully up there waiting to, waiting to beat us. You know, pounce on us the minute we do something wrong. That's not our God. That is not our God. He's not looking to pounce on us the moment we do something wrong. Will he, will he allow bad in our life when we do something wrong? Absolutely, but he's still right there to love us. He says he's got his arms underneath us so that when we do fall, he catches us. Just like when we're teaching a child to walk. When you're teaching your child to walk, you're, especially on those first couple times they're trying to walk, you're either holding their hands while they walk, well, you're right there to catch them as they fall so they don't fall hard. That's our God. That's our God loving us enough to say, you're not going to get hurt when you fall. I'm right here to catch you. All right, we're going to close in prayer. And Lord, we come before you. We ask that you just give us opportunities to learn, to share. Help us to grow in our understanding of who you are and so that we can share that with others. Lord, we do lift up Debbie and her health and ask you just to touch her body and heal her. Lord, we just thank you for this evening and the lesson that you have to, to learn who you are and to share who you are with others. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.